0: It's the Lens, it's the Lens, it's the Lens gotta live diverse It's the Lens, it's the Lens, it's the Lens live diverse You are listening to the Lens Living Diverse A podcast brought to you by the CNIB Advocacy Team Join Nisha, Vivi, and I as we speak to individuals with intersecting identities Who live with sight loss as they share their unique stories Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Lens Living Diverse. So, for today's episode, I'm going to be doing it solo. So, I'm going to be your host, and we have a special edition. And I know, I know, I always say every episode special, but this one has to do with looking at research with diversity. So, I know a lot of listeners are like, oh, research. Research. What does research have to do with diversity? But it is very important, especially for organizations that tend to people with disabilities. So it's important to know about race based research and gender based research and who's using our services. So, to have this discussion today, I'm very excited to have my guest, the one and only Dr. Mahadio Sukai. How are you doing, Mahadio?
1: All good, Ben. Thank you. I'm doing well. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing fantastic. When we first started the Lens Living Diverse, I always wanted to talk about this topic, so I'm excited that you're here today. All right. Provided you an excuse. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So, Mahadio, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your diverse identities
1: okay so um i'm going to start with who i am as opposed to what i do first because i think i think that's um that that that's important in north america we often start with what we do first we're defined by our our work not necessarily defined by ourselves so um i'll tell you about me i am a first generation canadian my parents and their parents and their parents were all born in Guyana. Mm. Uh, as was I. Um, so so that's, that's, that's part of who I am. I'm a person um, who has a lived experience with sight loss. Um, that, that's For me, because I was born blind, that's, that's a bit of a characteristic. It's, it's, it's something that I've always uh, lived with, something that I've always had to live with. I don't let it define me, but I, I do introduce myself um, with that characteristic, because I think it's important um, to to make sure that um, that for the purposes of this conversation, everyone kind of understands sort of who I am and, and where I come from. I'm a science fiction fan because that's an important demographic, mm-hmm. not one we often track. Um, I live in uh, I live in Kingston, Ontario, um, and I am married. Uh, and my wife and I have a baby on the way. Aww, um,
0: congratulations.
1: Thank you very much. I will also cheerfully say that that I rather enjoy cooking, um, and I rather enjoy reading. Uh, both of those two activities, I might have considerably less time to practice in the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so that that's that's who I am. What I do, um, I am uh, I'm a researcher, I'm a scientist. Um, my PhD is in genetics, um, and I am today a researcher in two disciplines. One of those two disciplines is what I would call accessibility, inclusion, and equity research, and the second of those two disciplines is, is, um, is vision sciences research, um, or perhaps public health research. Um, I'm CNIB's vice president and, uh, vice president research and international affairs and its chief accessibility officer uh, and i run the idea team within CNIB um, which is comprised of uh, a, a whole bunch of really qualified really smart really um, really wonderful people to work with um, most of whom have a lived experience as a person with a disability i think 80 percent of my team is persons with disabilities um, and, uh, and, and they're here doing accessibility and inclusion research. They're here doing vision sciences research and understanding lived experiences of persons who are blind, deaf, blind, partially sighted. And we do that, um, through the lens of inclusion and diversity and equity and accessibility.
0: Love it. Love it. And it's so appropriate that you're on the lens <laughs> right now and. I I know you were saying you're a sci-fi fan. I, I'm not going to confuse Star Trek and Star Wars. Please don't. <laughs> it, it'll be uh definitely a fight on this podcast for sure. So <laughs> thank you so much for sharing uh all that information and your identities of uh being raised in Guyana and wanting to to be a scientist. So that leads into my next question. Of growing up in the Caribbean, what was it like to have sight loss and wanting to go into the sciences? So I have wanted to be a scientist since I was four.
1: Um, and that might seem strange to a lot of people. I, I don't necessarily consider it strange. Um, I've, I've, I've actually wanted to, to be a scientist for a very, very long time. Um, I will say something about the Caribbean. I'll say something about the Caribbean then. Um, and it, it's still true about the Caribbean today. Um, the Caribbean doesn't have an organization like the CNIB. So there, there's no Caribbean National Institute for the Blind, right? There's, there's no CNIB where C is Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and, and what that also meant was, was services for uh, kids with sight loss in Guyana and Jamaica and Barbados, those, those services were not necessarily there. Um, that, that, that meant that as far as my parents knew, they were the only ones in their circle, you know, raising a kid with a visual impairment, raising a kid with sight loss. They didn't have a support network. Um, they didn't have a support network of friends or um, or peers also raising kids with sight loss. They also didn't have a support network of service providers and professionals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's that, it's that latter one, that the support network of service providers and professionals, and I actually think is really important um, because there's there's pros and cons to having one. Um, and and a major pro to having one is somebody else has has professional experience and can help you when you don't really know what to do. Um, but but a major con is because somebody else has professional experience and can help you when you don't know what to do, um, that that other person suddenly can tell you things about what you should or shouldn't could or couldn't may or may not be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I grew up in a space where my parents didn't have a support network, and therefore, when their four-year-old son, last of four kids, said, I want to be a scientist, and by the way, he's blind, um, their response wasn't, oh, I don't know if that's possible, therefore, let's not mm. do it, or, and, and their response wasn't, I'm going to go talk to somebody and figure out if this is even doable. Their response was, what's it hurt to let him try, mm. right? And, and so, so the thing about safety nets is they're wonderful things, but they sometimes can restrict us when we don't intend them to, right? Mm. And so, so growing, up, growing up in the Caribbean, I didn't have the safety net. Um, and, and, you know, an argument could be made was that, you know, well, if, if there's no safety net, then why would you let him try? Um, but, I mean, none of us knew what we didn't know, right? Nobody said hey, you need to do this, this and this and this. And by the way, in order to be a scientist, you need to be able to do A, B, and C. And you know, that's all very vision-related or whatever. Nobody said those things. Um, you know, nobody got in the way um, and said, hey, he's got to do special ed. Nobody got in the way and mm-hmm. said, you know, he had to do this or he had to do that in school. Or, and, and so, so when, when, that, when that doesn't happen, then you know, you, you're left with, okay, you try or you don't try. And the calculus is, do you lose anything by trying? Mm. And my parents' perspective was, you don't lose anything by trying. So try. And if it doesn't work, we'll figure something else out. And if it does work, then good for you, right? Yeah, and-, um, and And the thing about the, the the thing about a support network is it's supposed to increase the likelihood of success. Mm. But in a perverse way, support networks, can actually increase the likelihood that you don't try, mm-hmm. right? Because because then the 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 argument of well nobody's ever done this before or um, or blind people can't use microscopes or blind people can't use telescopes or you know um, chemical equations are going to be an issue or whatever, right? Um, when when someone presents that in the context of a support network, it becomes a very difficult thing. to to navigate because somebody with experience, somebody with authority says X Mm. and there's this thing called authority bias. We tend to believe people in positions of authority. Right. Um, And, and, and I say that to you as someone in a position of authority. And so I expect you to, to have authority bias. Believe me when I say that, (laughs) Um, right. But, but, you know, I, when, when there's no authority figure, there's no authority bias. If there's no authority bias, it means we're more likely to try things than we would have otherwise. Yeah. And
0: it's very interesting what you're saying because basically what you're saying, it was uncharted territory that you were getting into where it was no one before you when it comes to the sciences, especially in the Caribbean. And the fact that it was almost like, okay, we're just going to shoot in the air, whatever works. Well, I mean. Again, if if you don't play the
1: game, you'll never win it. Yeah, right. If you don't take a chance, you'll never know if you're going to succeed. Right, and and um, was it Michael John Michael Jordan who said you'll you'll miss one hundred percent of the shots that you Mm -hmm. never take? Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. and so so the thing is that that support networks are all about
0: determining which shots to take to maximize success. Exactly, and that kind of blows that blows my mind because i never thought of that support network bias where it's caging people in because especially we see this in uh families from kids from immigrant families where they're saying as someone with sight loss you can't do this you can't be a lawyer you can't be a geneticist you can't uh be account or at the time accountants because technology wasn't there. So you bring a really good point of that authority biases where we automatically like to hear when we hear something from someone who's so-called a professional, maybe a guidance counselor, maybe an advisory person from a certain disability-oriented organization, we automatically, okay, yeah, they're right, they're right. So yeah, that blows my mind that you brought that up. No, i i
1: think I think it's i mean um, you know i I'm, I'm cheerfully going to confess that I have an authority problem right um i actually I actually don't tend to um, i don't tend to just accept a voice of authority without mm. some sort of independent verification of my own right um there's there's a saying trust but verify uh, a lot of people use the saying um, and and I learned that saying in the context of genetics and and genetic diagnostics, which was the space that I was in before I came to CNIB, um, as in, you know, if, 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 you, if you discover something, you have to verify that it's real, right? And, and so if, if somebody says to you something, you have to verify that it's real. If you can't verify that, then you're on your own to determine how you deal with that information, right? But if you can verify it, then it's more trustworthy, right? But, but the, the, the flip side of that is, let's 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 take wikipedia as an example let's say let's say you've got the page on um on the planet earth and you've got 9000 people who write on that page that the earth is um flat and 1000 people who write on that page that the earth is round does that make the 9000 right and the 1000 wrong no it doesn't mm-hmm. right because because there's objective ways to verify that the earth is actually round right mm-hmm. um and and so 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 verification isn't just because to people say something, it must be true, right? Verification involves kind of your own, your own kind of acid test of, of what it is you want to do and how it is you want to do it and, and how that support system is interacting with you and what kind of information they're providing you. And, and, um, and, and does, it, does it make sense? Does it hang together? Is it consistent? Is it coherent? Is it relevant to you, right? And, and so, so how we think about the support system, particularly as a first-generation immigrant, yeah. right? Um, you know, that's, that's meaningful. I recall, I recall my first interaction with CNIB, um, was my parents and me and, uh, and an intake person from CNIB from like the early 1990s. Um, and, and this person was cheerfully having a conversation with my parents as if they were born and bred in North America
0: and had been Mm -hmm. here for six
1: generations and it wasn't resonating with them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so so when, at the end of it all, they said, well, so what would you like to do? My parents were like, well, he doesn't need a white cane because mm-hmm. he can get around. We've got him, right? He doesn't need this. He doesn't need that. Um, and, and all of, like, there was no ILS training. There was no, there was no O&M training. What my parents were attracted to was, was the technology because they understood how that could help me in the mm-hmm. classroom, right? But there was no... There was no attempt to actually try to 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 meet a first gen immigrant Indo Caribbean family where they're at, right? And and I mean that was then. This is now, right? And and we can have lots of argument that that you know CNIV's got a different way of doing things now. Um, but what struck me about then was that um was that there was this there was a sort of perspective mm-hmm. that blind was blind. And the rest of you didn't matter, mm-hmm. which is not true. Right? That that's a logical fallacy. Mm-hmm. And we can we can spend as much time as you want deconstructing that particular logical <laughs> fallacy and and
0: and why it matters to actually think about it through through a research lens. Exactly. And this even goes into my next question. And you brought up such a good point where it's just like just that identity of blindness. That's all that matters. When I'm going to go visit a family, we're not going to see the the culture. We're not going to see uh, what that identity of the family, even the location of the family. We're just going to look at blindness as a whole. So that leads into my next question. When we do look at um, research based uh, or research based on other identities, why is it so important for organizations such as the CNIB and other organizations that uh, deal with individuals with disability? I'm going to give you a naive example.
1: Okay. Um, so we did a study three years ago looking at uh, educational outcomes for kids aged 16 to 21 with sight loss. Yeah. Right. Um, and before we did this study, the prevailing opinion was that the high school graduation rate of kids with sight loss was 65%. Mm-hmm. In fact, we found out that the graduation rate of, of, um, of kids with sight loss was much closer to 75%. And, and we also checked it, it had to be kids with sight loss who were of graduating age, right? Um, now, I was 15 when I graduated high school, so, so I wasn't of graduating age, but I graduated anyway. Right. Um, And, and most kids graduate high school between the ages of 17 and 21. Right. And so, so we asked of the 17 to 21 year olds, um, you know, did you graduate high school? The answer was 76% graduated high school. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and the thing is though, that if you actually, if you, if you took that and you said, okay, fine, let's actually pay attention to demographics. Let's, let's talk about kids with sight loss alone. Let's talk about kids with sight loss plus additional disabilities, mm-hmm. right? Kids with sight loss alone are graduating in 88% clip. Kids with sight loss plus additional disabilities are graduating in a 58% clip. Mm-hmm. So first of all, that 65% number was wrong, right? And second of all, right? What you found was that the, the people who were really having problems with high school graduation were people who lived with sight loss and additional disabilities, mm. right? People who lived with sight loss alone actually were graduating high school at a better rate than their non-disabled peers, mm. right? Mm. And I mean, there's, there's a couple of other things in there that, that they're a little bit distinct, but that, that's the basic story, right? And so, so now if, you, if, if, if all you said was, okay, what's the graduation rate? And you didn't ask the dealer with additional disabilities question you never would have picked that up right exactly and and so so you know let's let's think about let's think about another sort of real life example right um and uh and let's let's talk about um, a study that we did four years ago before the pandemic so 2018 and and we were we were working um, with others within the CNIB to update our client database, and, and we asked a pile of demographic questions of people. We also asked a pile of tech use questions and what people were interested in. Mm-hmm. Here's a really interesting thing that we found: um, the the working age people who were coming to CNIB were more likely to not be white, mm. and and therefore, and, and by the way, not only were they not more likely to not be white, they were also more likely to use more high-tech assistive mm-hmm. aids. On the other hand, the retirees that were coming to CNIB were actually more likely to be white and more likely mm-hmm. to limit their them themselves to 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 low vision aids, like optical aids, like magnifiers and monocles and things like that. Right. And and that, that was that was a study done four and a half years ago, right? Um, and and so so maybe that doesn't necessarily hold true today in the context of the pandemic, but but this was 2018 when the majority of this data was collected. And, it held then, right? Yeah. Um, and and his, historically, we we've, we've always thought that okay, you know, Cnib's client population skews older, um, and that there's an even distribution of everybody throughout throughout that age range. But that's actually not true, because Younger people want different things than older people. Yeah. Younger people come from different backgrounds than older people, right? Um, and and so so age matters. And if 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 you follow that chain of logic to its its conclusion, not only did age matter, but also ethnicity and race mattered, mm-hmm. right? And so all of a sudden, we've identified from two different case studies a place where additional disabilities matter, a place where age matters, a place where ethnicity matters. And if we didn't ask those questions, we wouldn't be able to understand that. I come out of a space of personalized medicine, right? And personalized medicine is a dirty word. Um, well, I mean, genetics in the context of, of the disability community is a dirty concept generally because everyone mistakes it for eugenics and don't get me started on that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so, so personalized medicine effectively is the right treatment for the right person at the right time in the right dose, in the right way, right? Think about personalized anything in the context of the kinds of services that CNIB provides or in the kinds of services that any disability services provider will provide or in the kinds of services that anybody will provide in any context, right? It's the right service for the right person at the right time in the right way to the right degree. As a first-generation immigrant, South Asian, Indo-Caribbean, um, you know, person who lives in Kingston, person who's married, person who's expecting a kid, right? I'm going to have a very different set of needs, naively, intuitively, practically, than someone who is 75 years old, who just lost their sight, who's white, who's been here for six generations, um, who retired 10 years ago, who has a substantial nest egg, who lives in Halliburton. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Right? and and if we don't if we don't start recognizing that that people are different then when we when we do research when we and and by research i mean research capital r the kind of the kind of academic level research that my team does right um but it applies to anything it applies to service delivery it applies to you know, research small r, which is like public opinion polls and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and 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 so, so if, if we don't ask the question of who are we talking to, then we will not be able to understand what we're getting from those conversations. Mm-hmm. Because who we're
0: talking to matters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what? This is funny. That's a podcast. I wish people could see the big smile on my face because this is definitely aspects that should be said and me as a, a person and I was doing my MSW, I'm doing my MSW and we had a, a research class and this is the critical thinking that needs to be put out to these organizations and this the agencies because you hit the nail on the head when you were making mention that you are a person from the Caribbean, first generation Canadian and that comparison to Other clients where you're not just amalgamated into to just one one service so catering services so that goes into uh, my next question which I'm very interested in hearing and I remember uh, we were at a meeting and you were talking about this and I got excited hearing about personas and uh, those identities to to put to certain people so is there other terminology that uh, is important when it comes to to looking at uh, research with uh, different diversities or identities?
1: So, so I, I um, personas is a marketing term, um, okay. and and it's, it's it's a useful term, right? Because it it gives you a sense as to what the whole concept is, right? If you're taking on a persona, you're taking on somebody who's got a certain set of characteristics, who's got a certain set of lived experiences, a certain set of identities, and who's interested in certain things, right? Um, and and everybody everybody's different. Everybody's got a different group of personas that, that they can identify with. Some people identify with the... Um, with the persona of someone who's looking for a job some people identify with the persona of you know somebody who's a great cook somebody identifies with the persona of the outdoor adventure or whatever um and 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 so so persona persona assumes that you can amalgamate a bunch of these things together and and basically this is this is this is how like this is the paint that you've thrown at, at the wall and 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 this is this is the i can't think of a non-visual metaphor here but um you know like okay so i know i have one it's it's relative to cooking right so so um so so this is the this is the energy bar that you've made from these ingredients yeah right and with different ingredients you have a different energy bar right so so you know a persona might be here's here's your peanut butter crunch nut bar yeah right um forgive me to to all of those who have sensitivities to peanut butter and nuts um and and then somebody else is is the oat chocolate chip bar right and and so these are two very distinct energy bars and they come from two very distinct sets of ingredients right they taste different you use them perhaps a little bit differently different people are going to eat some compared to others and so so that that's all fine right um and, and from my perspective, it is, it is critically important to recognize what we're doing. Um, what we're interested in understanding are traits or characteristics of people and how those traits or characteristics or even experiences actually impact the outcomes that those people have in their lives, right? And, and so, so if, if I'm engaged in something, whatever the thing is, right? Am I more likely or less likely to, su- to succeed at it? Am I more likely or less likely to take up the knowledge from it? Am I more likely or less likely to, um, to, to engage in, um, in something that, that says that, that this thing that I participated in um, had a meaningful difference in my life? And, and you know, it, it's all about understanding how to make something more likely rather than less likely, yeah. right? And, and you, want, you want increased positive outcomes. You want decreased negative outcomes. That, that's, that's the word that we're thinking of, outcomes, right? So, so, so the, the outcome is more likely or the outcome is less likely. So you want to you make the positive thing more likely. You want to make the negative thing less likely. Um, and so the question is, can you measure the positive thing? Can you measure the negative thing, mm. right? Um, and then can you understand everything you can possibly understand about the journey that that person is taking so that you can actually try to figure out how much of that contributes to the positive thing and how much of that contributes to the negative thing, right? Um, and, and so, so this, is, this is basically what a persona is and, and what personas are generally, um, refined, I think, a little bit from a, from, from a scientific and, and research perspective because, um, because when we think about personas in terms of program development, it's like, who's going to attend my workshop? Mm-hmm. right and and my question goes beyond that it's not who's going to attend the workshop it's who's going to be successful at generating the outcomes that, that workshop is intended to do right so so those are those are related things um and one goes a little bit farther
0: than the other exactly a perfect explanation and that uh, makes me wonder about the term social determinants of health and i actually Started realizing this terminology a few years ago. Uh, what is your take on social determinants of health? Um,
1: so, part of that could be your social location, right? Um, part of that could be um, your experience that you have as a person that impacts your health. So, so social determinants of health. It's it. So, um, so health is in this case the outcome, right? How healthy are you as a person physically? mentally, emotionally, right? Um, and what are the things that influence that outcome? And, and so if, if, if we think of your health as the outcome, things that might influence that include where you live, how much money you're making, who you're living with, right? Um, are you first gen, right? Um, where are you from on, uh, on this planet? Um, your education level, your employment level, Right. Whether whether you have have benefits, whether you have pension, right? What's your access to services? What's your access to healthcare, right? Um, And and so so there's all of these things, some of which you can change, some of which are influenceable, some of which are not. Like, nobody can influence the fact that I'm a first-gen Canadian, right? Nobody can influence the fact that I was born in Guyana, right? Nobody can influence the fact that, um, that, that you know my parents are five generations removed from being born in India, right? None of those things I can change. But I can change my education level. I can change my access to, to um, employment. I can change my, my income, I can change um, I can change where I live. I can change who I live with, right? Um, and so, so some of these things are things that you can, you can influence. Some of these things are things that you can change and, and you can also change things like um, you can also change things like, you know, how you uptake information, right? Yeah. Um, what kind of information you're being taught, what kind of information uh, are you, are you party to in whatever it is you're thinking of and whatever it is you're doing. Right. So, so those things that those, those things that we can influence, right, um, which are social determinants of health, if we can influence them in a positive direction, we can influence outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I use the term social determinants of health a great deal because it's an understandable term for people who, who need to get a sense as to what it is we're doing. Whether, whether you like the term or not is actually not relevant, um, but because people actually understand
0: what an SDH is. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's a good model to look at and good to understand truly the barriers that people have because, for example, you have a service or a program that may run late, but people would ask and be like, oh, why is that person not attending? But looking at aspects of like transportation as well to even get those services, or I know it's really helpful care based and health-based, but sometimes looking at that journey of how that person's getting to those services or how that person's implementing their health or safety. So well, I
1: mean here, try this one on for size. Yeah. Um,
0: access to technology is a
1: social determinant of health. Of course. Right? And and this this became brutally obvious during the pandemic, when everything went virtual, right? And, and so so because everything's gone virtual, if, if you don't have access to good internet, if you don't have access to the right technology, then you're not going to have access to education. You're going to have much harder access to employment. You're not going to be able to access your healthcare services effectively. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a cascading effect. So, so we did a study um, where we looked at accessibility of online learning for post-secondary education. Um, And the interesting thing is the platforms are fine. Well, I mean, no, I take that back. They're not fine. Some platforms (laughs) are better than others, Um, but the platforms weren't the problem, right? The, the, The problem with accessibility of online learning was that people didn't have technology and if they didn't have technology and the platforms required technology, you were stuck. Or if people had technology then the other question was whether the instructors knew how to use the technology. Mm. Right. And so, so, so those were bigger determinants of success than the accessibility of the platform. Right. And the thing is that, that, you know, there's, there's a bit of a default assumption, right? Everyone, everyone uses a laptop or everyone uses a smartphone. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, have you tried working off of your iPhone 16 hours a day. It's hard. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Right, the the way that you deal with documents, having to listen to voiceover all the time, trying to deal with magnification, you know, it, it's it's difficult to look at your phone sixteen hours a day.
0: Yeah, you right? can just the comfort level just
1: hey, hunched over difficult. your phone. It, yeah, <laughs> hey, it's difficult looking at your phone eight hours a day or six hours a day or four hours a day. Some people do it, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and and some people will work off their phones. Some people will not. I won't. Right? I had a call this morning with a colleague where we were talking about. Use of a laptop versus use of a smartphone versus use of a tablet. Yeah. Um, and and I, I said, I use my laptop to deal with documents. And I use my laptop um, to do screen on communication. And I use my laptop to watch TV. Yeah. Right? I use my smartphone as a phone. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I use my smartphone to surf the web. Right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I use my tablet to read a book. How somebody uses technology and the piece of technology they have access to has become, because of the pandemic, a social yeah. determinant of health. And and if you think about that, who's got access to what has a lot to do with um, with how much money you're making, right? Has a lot to do with who's in the house. Has a lot to do with um, with where you live and what you have access to around you, right? And and so so basically, what I'm what I'm saying is is that. If, if, you think about, if you think about a pyramid, right, um, and at the top of this pyramid is the outcome that we're interested in, underneath that are a bunch of things that are influenceable to get to that outcome. Underneath that are a bunch of things that are influenceable to get to the influencers that you influence to get to the outcome, hmm. right? And underneath that are things that you can't influence that dictate how you're responding to both sets of influencers, Right. Mm. And, and so so you've got, you've got the outcome, you've got the, the first order influencer, you've got the second order influencer, and then you have, you have your, your unchangeable characteristics. Right. And you might have more layers of influence in between. And so, so it's a pretty complex model when you try to think that through. Right. But at the end of the day, there's one and a half million people in this country who have seeing difficulties. And every single one of those one and a half million people is fundamentally different Mm. from the next one. Right, how I respond to something isn't going to be the same as how you respond to something, mm-hmm. right? But the thing is that um, that your parents are immigrants, right? You were born here, if I remember right. Yes. Um, and so we're second gen, like you're second gen compared to me being first gen. Yeah. Right. Um, and our our cultural reference points are subtly distinct, right? They're not the same. Um, they're, they're different enough that they're meaningful. We'll have some, some common culinary reference points. We'll have some common experiential points. You grew up in Toronto, right? Ah, uh, GTA, yes. You grew up in the GTA, right? Yeah. I grew up in the GTA after we came here. Um, but, but the thing is that I came here differently than you came here. Yeah. Right? And so, so how I take up the GTA experience is going to be different from how you take up the GTA experience, um, which is then going to play out in some of the outcomes that we have, right? I came here stubborn. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and so, so in coming here stubborn, when I had educators who said, you know, you shouldn't be here, I was like, well, nuts to you, right? <laughs> and, and But then if you grow up in a system where you learn that it's okay to say you shouldn't be here, you're more likely to take it
0: definitely very good point on the differences and the different experiences of different individuals so with this comment i love this food for thought because i'm definitely getting fed for sure with all this knowledge and just loving it because this is what we i found as a black male that we we had at the back of, um, or I had at the back of my mind, but just didn't know how to explain it at the time when I was younger. So, I explaining all this, I, I love it. I love all the aspects of it, and that makes me go into my next question. So, what's your goals for looking at the CNIB with research?
1: So, so we we talk a lot about, um, we talk a lot about education. We talk a lot about employment. We talk a lot about um about technology we talk a lot about access to services and, and and the first generation of research projects at CNIB have focused on education employment technology and access to services um, but what we haven't done is we haven't done um different people call it different things some people call it journey mapping uh, some people call it longitudinal studies right what we haven't done is, is taken a Ben and a Mahadio and followed them through um, the equivalent stages of their lives and looked to understand what's different and why it's different and how to, how to, um, how to bend the arc of Ben's life to give Ben the outcomes that, that Ben wants and deserves, while bending the arc of Mahadio's life to give Mahadio the outcomes that Mahadio wants and deserves, Right. Um, and and so, so those kinds of studies take decades, right? Um, those are not things that are done overnight. Those are things that are done where, you know, let's say, for example, you're working with kids with, with uh, sight loss. You start as early as you can get the kid. And your question is, how are they going to do when they finish high school, right? So you've got 15, 20 years to influence that kid until they finish high school. It's mm. not a study that's done in five days. That's a study that's done in 15 times 360. Well, call it 20 times 365. So that, that, that's a study that's done in 7,300 days. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a long kind of project. That's one thing. The second thing is we talked about technology a lot. right? Um, and, and so, so there's, there's technology that's coming that might be helpful to us, might not be helpful to us. Right? We don't really know because nobody's ever asked the question. Right, smart homes, smart devices, um, AI-mediated decision making. Right, these are things that could help people who are blind or partially sighted. There are also things that, if 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 we don't really understand how the technologies are taking up the question around diversity and accessibility and equity and inclusion, then they could just as easily hurt people who are blind or partially sighted. Mm. Right, and and so so do we understand? those elements of technologically technologically aided decision making right like ai decision making if if the ai is using the wrong model to make decisions then people like you and me are going to get excluded yeah right um but we don't we don't pay attention to that as yet we need to pay attention to those kinds of questions right there's there's lots of there's there's lots of things that we need to be asking my one of, one of my fundamental tenets is, is and, and I'm going to sound like my mother for a moment who, who was a high school chemistry teacher, if you don't ask a question, you could probably fill in the blank here. You'll mm-hmm. never know the answer, mm-hmm. right? If you never ask, you'll never know, right? And so, so I, will, I will tell you that my goal is to find ways to ask questions that we haven't thought about. Yeah. Right? So that the day that somebody thinks about them, we've got answers as opposed to having to wait another five years to get answers. Mm. Right. Um, There's, there's a, so I, I, I like, I like the following model um, and I'm going to share it with you. It's, it's a bit of a grid, right? It's a two by two matrix. We either know something or we don't know something. We either recognize that we know it or we don't recognize that we know it. Right. Um, And so, so that, that means there's four, four elements. There's things that we don't know that we don't know. There's things that we don't know that we know. There's things that we know that we don't know. And there's things that we know that we know, right? The things that we know that things, right? We can call them out, right? That's that's conscious competence, right? The things that we don't know that we know that's instinct, That's unconscious competence, right? So for example you know, breathing, is unconscious competence yeah. right? You do it long enough. Riding a bike is unconscious competence, right? Um, the things that we, the things that we know that we don't know, that's our ignorance. That's yeah. those are our gaps in our knowledge. Those are the things we want to learn. The things that we have the greatest problem with are the things that we don't know that we don't know, mm-hmm. because those are voids, right? Those are unconscious incompetence. We have no conception that this thing is something that we ought to be paying attention to, and. What's more, we have no conception that we have no conception, mm. right? That's, that's what this means. And, and so the whole conversation around paying attention to diversity and equity and inclusion and accessibility and research falls into that space of we don't know what we don't know because most people don't think about it because most people aren't researchers with lived experience, right? And as it turns out, I've got a team yeah. whose job it is to think about this stuff. Mm. right and my job is to think about this stuff so that the organization can have benefit Mm.
0: hence the idea team perfect title for sure perfect title and we think uh, so (laughs) exactly and this is uh, for the listeners this is a lot to take in this is so much information and i bet everybody listening really appreciates it uh just even swinging back. And I I know this question should have been asked at the beginning. And we've been talking, well, I guess you were going a lot into uh, the theories and the different aspects of research. I kind of want to know a little bit about you and your journey on becoming a scientist and how you cultivated all this thinking, how you cultivated all these theories and being a blind scientist and the barriers in your journey to become a blind scientist. So, Let's swing it back. Let me hear a little bit about you and what those barriers were. I told you I wanted to do this since I was four.
1: Everyone has, everyone has conceptions of, of, of people generally. Everyone has conceptions of people who are other or different, right? Yeah. Um, we also have conceptions of science. We have conceptions of research. We have conceptions of cooking. We have conceptions of, frankly, everything. Right, human beings are are notoriously um, first impressions creatures. We have we have first impressions about everything, and ninety percent of the time, those first impressions are wrong. Right, um, and and in fact, the, the thing about human intelligence is, is, yes, you trust your instinct because your instinct knows what it's it's telling you. But but your instinct is itself a bit of an organic AI. Well, I mean, it's it's an organic intelligence, so it's not AI at all. Your, your instinct is is making a snap judgment in a short period of time based on available information, um, and and based on based on what it thinks. Um, what it thinks should happen, right? And and most humans with that kind of with that kind of thought process going on rely a lot on precedent and, and rely a lot on mm-hmm. um, on on kind of instinct driving some of their decision making tools, um, and so so when when you when you find something that you're not accustomed to that isn't in your experience you get crossed up, right? Mm-hmm. And so so if you're not exposed to somebody with sight loss you're not exposed to somebody. From different intersecting social identities or different intersecting social locations, you really don't know what to do because because you've not been exposed, and so all of all of your all of your your innate heuristics, all of your decision making, um, sort of comes from a place of well, this is outside of the realm of experience, right? So, and if this is outside of the realm of experience, we balk and we don't know what to do. Um, that that's where barriers come from, right? um but here's the funny thing what 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 we've actually forgotten is that is that every human being at one point or another is outside of the realm of experience of every other human being one point or another right um and that's that's the nature of the beast um now some of us like myself make it their business to 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 in at least in in my in my professional life um i i make it my business to try to actually very deliberately be outside of the realm of experience. Um, But not, not in, not, not in a way that that's like, not in a way that that's, that's bad or malicious, but just in a way that says, I need you to question your experience. Right. Um, And and that, that questioning experience is a conscious thing. Um, But, but this is, this is actually where barriers come from. People put barriers up barriers exist because um, because whoever thinks about something has thought about it in a certain way. And we are outside of the way that they thought about it. Therefore, the thing that that's been put in place is a barrier because we we're outside of the range of experience that it was actually coded for. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, I found a lot of that. I, I didn't call it that as a kid, obviously. Um but I found a lot of that, that a lot of the, well, you're blind, you're not supposed to play sports. You're blind, you're not supposed to be in a science lab. You're blind, you're not supposed to be in school. That was the thing growing up. You're blind, you're not supposed to be in school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so, you know, how do you deal with that? that? That also depends on the support system that you have. The support system I had was my parents and my siblings and my family, right? And so, and as I got older, friends, right? Um and so, so they were the ones who acted as a support system to say, Okay, you're going to encounter those barriers, but you don't have to let those barriers stop you mm-hmm. right um, it's It's different when the support system that you have is the barrier mm-hmm. right <laughs> yep. um, and 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 I mean i I had some of that in different spaces because my support system wasn't really all that in favor of me doing independent navigation until i was until I was an adult, and so that was a barrier, right. But in the context of my education, my support system is very supportive, right? Yeah. And so if, you're, if your support system is a barrier, then then you have, you have another, like you, you've, you've got to figure out how to deal with that. Um, but if your support system is doing its job, then it helps you overcome barriers. It helps you navigate your way through them. It helps you identify, prevent, and remove, right? Um, overcome is not the right word I would use. Identify, prevent, and remove, right? Yeah. Um so, so you asked me about my journey. Um, and, and I mean, I, I, had, I had a bunch of different experiences. Um, I, I graduated high school when I was 15, as I indicated before. Um, I went to post-secondary as a 15-year-old with sight loss as a first-generation immigrant, not an easy time, right? Um, and, and I all of that, and I wanted to do this thing that I wanted to do since I was four, right? A few times, I, I sort of shifted my path a little bit based on the advice that people gave me or based on experiences that I had, but I never deviated from wanting to be a scientist. The other thing I've always also wanted to be is an educator. Yeah. Um, and we've spent the last hour having a very educational conversation, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I mean, the, the thing is that, that where I come from, being an educator was actually the most exalted profession, right? Mm. Because where I come from, um, the most exalted professions were engineer, lawyer, doctor, teacher. But you couldn't be an engineer, a lawyer, or a doctor unless somebody taught you, Yeah. right? So, so teacher was the most exalted profession. My mother was a teacher, right? Um, uncles and aunts on both sides of the family, were teachers. And so, so growing up, I saw that as, as, as the pinnacle of everything, to be able to influence the next generation of minds, right? And so that's what I wanted to be, and I helped that. Um, and I, I held being a scientist and being a teacher Close to, close to that identity of this is, this is what I want to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I held that without really understanding what the shape of that would look like. I held that for my entire life. I still hold it. I'm a scientist and an educator first. You know, I'm a business executive second, right? Um, and, and so, so um, you know, the, 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 the story, the, the direction, the orientation can shift and change and, and modify. But like, I, I never, um, I never lost the, I want to be a scientist and I want to be an educator. Mm. Um, and, and people could say, well, that's nice, but that's just you. What about other people? Other people aren't so lucky. Yeah. Um, what I will say is there was absolutely no luck in any of that. Right. There was a lot of hard work and a lot of people who were taking the time to be supportive. And there was a lot of mental health.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, because being being somebody who got recognized, and, and you did it just a moment ago. You you called me a blind scientist, and and I would beg to differ. Yeah. I'm a scientist who happens to be blind. Yes, right. Um, and so so the scientist is the identity, and the blindness is the characteristic, right? As opposed to the blind scientist, where the blind is the identity and the scientist is the characteristic, right? The emphasis matters to me. But, but it's funny because a lot of people thought that I went into science to be the blind scientist, to be the blind geneticist, mm. right? You don't want to be the first blind anything. None of us wants us to be the first blind anything. Mm-hmm. Or at least none of us should want to be the first blind anything, right? I've met a few people who have wanted to be the first blind something and, and that that's okay. That that's, that's your life choice, right? but then but then, once you're that thing, what happens what happens to you then you've you've achieved that life goal then what mm-hmm. right um, and and so so i've i've been i've've i've had I've had a lot of had a lot of work that goes along with the fact that I had no role models mm-hmm. that my mentors um, my sponsors my the the people who uh, who were my guides within the space weren't people like me, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there was a lot of mental health issues associated with going through that space effectively in isolation, right? Mm-hmm. That's not an easy journey. And I wouldn't wish that journey on anybody. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's why I take, I take the time to have conversations like this and to talk to people um, who want to do what I've done and, or some reflection of what i've done because they need to know that they're not alone they need to know that others have gone through that space right and and you know what i had this conversation earlier today with somebody what is mentorship Ben? Mm. mentorship i will tell you it isn't the i'm going to ask you some very specific questions i'm going to go in and treat it like a job interview mentorship is me having this conversation with you live in real time and in full color yeah. if color's your thing right because not for everyone it is um, and 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 i'm I'm just having this conversation with you, yeah, right. Some of the people that i I consider to be my best mentors I just love to sit and listen to mm. I just love to sit and shoot the breeze with right and and have random conversations about something anything, and see how see how things kind of connect in our brains right that's mentorship yeah that's what mentorship really is, right we teach mentorship to be this thing, which is like okay, you have to You have to have these five questions you're going to ask the person. You don't want to waste their time.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your story, first of all. And that's, I love how you made mention about blind scientists, terminology. Terminology is key, (laughs) definitely. And it's so important language, putting blind before what you are. And that really is a good reminder to us as persons with sight loss. Actually, before we get... um, and this amazing episode just any last words that you have for from just like we were talking with mentorship any words that you have for anybody who is interested in getting into the field that you're getting or you got into and your journey
1: you know what if if you're interested um i gotta tell you there's always there's always room to learn on the team there's always room to um to try to to try to figure out if this is for you feel free to reach out and we can always talk um that's never a problem research at cnid.ca. um what i what i would say i think what i would say is this 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 kind of this kind of work is 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 crucially important it, it's a very different way of thinking about the world it's a very different way of thinking about research questions um and it, it's a way that that holistically takes into account the fact that people are people right we often forget about that when we do research but people are indeed people right mm-hmm. um and uh and i i think i think that it's it's easy to be reductionist it's easy to sort of categorize it's easy to sort of say you know this first everything else second um, and it, it's there's there's danger in simplicity right mm. Uh, humans, I think, socially, humans are irreducibly complex systems, right? So, biologically, we can understand what a human is and how a human works, but socially, I think the only way to understand human social, like human social cues, is to actually understand human social cues. So, so science fiction reference: Isaac Asimov mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and psychohistory, right? Isaac Asimov was the author of the Foundation series of novels, and and in this future history that, that he was writing, he, he postulated um, that you could mathematically model human society, um, but that you could only mathematically model human society in its entirety, mm-hmm. right? Because human society and, and, and social interaction was irreducibly complex, right? Um, and you know what? That's not necessarily wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But but I, I, think, I think for the purposes of what we're trying to do, for the purposes of vision sciences and, and accessibility and inclusion research, we need to understand where the barriers come from. We need to understand how to prevent them. We need to understand how to remove them. We need to understand what drives their creation. We need to understand how we move through those barriers, right, or don't move through those barriers. Um, that's that's fun work it's not work anybody taught me to do um and frankly it 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 isn't it isn't something that up until a few years ago i would say was even legitimately recognized as, as a valid discipline but you know we're changing things um yeah. and anyone who wants to learn how to do this
0: let's have a chance love it love it love it love it love it as i said before Food for thought, and we just got a buffet that was incredible. Thank you so much, Mahadio. And actually, uh, bonus question, bonus question: <laughs> How did it feel to put on that lab coat? I know someone wanted to to know that. Which lab coat? The the white lab coat. Did you when you're a geneticist? Do you ever have to put oh, it on? Oh, you see that that that's a fun myth. Um, <laughs> the, the the number of times that scientists
1: actually wear lab coats. Um, under certain circumstances you would. Like if, if you're actually actively trying to protect yourself, yeah. you'd put the lab coat on. Yeah. Most of the rest of the time, if you didn't need to
0: do that, we wouldn't wear a lab coat. Okay. See, we just right? debunked a myth today. Thank you so much for imparting your knowledge on uh listeners and myself. I learned a lot today. And I don't know, is this the right the right term or for Star Trek? May the force be with you, or am I totally off? No, that's Star Wars. Oh, did it again I did it again so thank you Mahadio I really appreciate you coming through today you're very welcome live long and prosper I love it I love there we go that's the right Star Trek uh, reference uh so once again thank you everybody for listening to another edition of the lens living diverse if you like today's episode and previous episodes don't hesitate to like and subscribe on your favorite listening platform once again, like, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. Also, if you have any great ideas or even want to be a part of the lens Living Diverse, email us at advocacy at cnib.ca. Once again, advocacy at cnib.ca. And lastly, if you want some more fills of advocacy and diversity and inclusion, please visit the CNIB website, hit advocacy, and then go to We Are CNIB, where you could get many resources about diversity and inclusion. I want to wish everybody a wonderful day. Peace.